0: Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. Just got home from a planning meeting with Carson, Mike D, and Bonaduce. We got together and said, let's figure out the future of New Jersey is the world. What's going to happen in 2022? How do we keep making this Patreon, which is already really good, at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. How do we make it even better? How do we bring... More to the table. Deliver more to the people who love New Jersey. Well, i love to tell you the results of that meeting. I had to cut it short because I had my son with me and he vomited in Carson's house. So we had to ski battle a little early. A little earlier than planned. But man, was the beginning of that meeting good. You know what else is going to be really good? 1226, baby. The day after Christmas, New Jersey is the world live at House of Independence in Asbury Park. Get your tickets now. I'm hearing that we already sold a big chunk of these things off. Thanks to everybody who's already uh, getting on board. You go to the House of Independence website. Get those tickets for the 1226 show because we're gonna go big. I'm gonna have more info on that in the coming weeks. Now, I'm super psyched about today's episode. There's been a really cool thing. I mean, from the governor to um, Political reporter, Matt Friedman, to now, you know, talking to my friend Alexis about Newark with these interviews I've been doing, they're starting to come and occupy a place on New Jersey as the world. And people are starting to notice and there's people around New Jersey starting to reach out. I got reached out to by the ACLU, an organization I've always been really impressed by. They said they wanted to have the uh, New Jersey director of the ACLU come talk to us about what's happening with their organization in Jersey. I said, Yeah. So very, very psyched to welcome Amal Sinat to the show. It's a great combo. I'm really proud of it. We talk about what sort of civil liberties related issues are facing Jersey these days. We talk about how you can be in an organization that's that's aiming for, for change. And, and when you're also dealing with a state that notoriously has some very entrenched machine politics, as we've talked about here before, New Jersey is the world we talked about sort of what people can be doing to get out there and get active to help this state and help the people in this state. And as always, I'm thinking about the relationship between the cities and the suburbs in this state and what a thoughtful, intelligent human being our uh, esteemed guest was. And I'm super thrilled that we had this conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. New Jersey is the world, everybody. We were just saying, and and I want to be clear to you uh, I just want to be very respectful and make sure, because my last name is a disaster if mispronounced. It's mispronounced Gethard. Amal yeah. Sinha. Uh, Amal Sinha. Sinha. Amal Sinha. Hello. Yeah. Director of the New Jersey ACLU. We're lucky to talk to you.
1: I am lucky to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Because um, I le- we are we already started chatting, and I could tell we have a good vibe already. So I said, <laughs> let's just hit record. I was just saying for the ACLU, it must be so interesting to work in Jersey because I think a lot of people look at cases that the ACLU takes on nationally, historically, and they're theoretical. But Jersey's so densely packed, so many different types of people on top of each other, and this extends to class, race, wealth disparity. It's hands-on here in a way that must be – I mentioned things need, must move very fast for you and must be very head-spinning at times working in this state?
1: It's it's a privilege and it's overwhelming at the same time. Uh, I feel like the, the density of the population certainly adds to the palpability and the urgency of what we do. Uh, look, we are uh, one of the biggest states in the country in terms of population density, and we uh, accordingly have an ACLU affiliate that is uh, a, a, one of the biggest ACLU affiliates in the country, Uh, And we have a litigation docket and a policy agenda that is um, that is accommodating that density. Right. Like we we have we appear before the Supreme Court of New Jersey more times than any non-governmental party in the state. Uh, We did some numbers um, in uh, 2020. We appeared before the Supreme Court in 35 percent of its docket. Uh, which is just huge and fascinating. And I talked to my colleagues all across the country and they don't have that kind of a relationship with the Supreme Court the way we get to.
0: That is shocking. That's that's a huge amount of time. I had no idea. And it's funny, I told one of my co-hosts, Mike D, I was on the phone with him earlier about something else. And I I talked about how today was the day I was talking with you. And he was like, that's awesome. He's an ACLU uh, supporter, long time. And uh, he was like, When I think ACLU, I think for a lot of people, you think civil rights, you think about the Southern states, you think about defending free speech and journalists and national cases. It does beg, I guess the broadest question I can ask for our listeners and that I'm so fascinated in is what are the New Jersey specific priorities that the ACLU is taking on in recent years?
1: Yeah, we've been at the forefront of all of these different issues that have, have been impacting New Jerseyans for time immemorial. Uh, that includes you know, criminal justice reform, uh, immigrants rights, uh, making sure that LGBTQ people feel protected and welcome in our in our state, uh, ensuring the rights of of women and reproductive health in New Jersey, um, making sure that we are protecting everybody's right to be uh, uh, to practice whatever religion they want to, to uh, freedom of speech and make sure that they're free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And we do this all through the lens lens of racial justice, right? Like we're trying to make sure uh, every decision that we make internally and externally, whether it's a case that we're taking on or a policy campaign, or even, you know, who we hire and and what kinds of uh, folks that we want within, within the ranks of the ACLU, we think about power dynamics uh, we think about uh, disrupting white supremacy. We think about racial justice. We think about our our hundred years long uh, principles of ensuring equality uh, for as many people as possible in our state, and and making sure that we're using all of our tactics to achieve those goals. Because we are a multi issue, multi tactic organization, and of course, people may not think uh, automatically of of New Jersey as having civil rights issues. Uh, but we certainly do. We have our fair share. Um, and and New Jersey is a uh, state that has a lot of good and has potentially, I think it's, it's potentially one of the most progressive states in the country. Um, but we're also one of the most segregated states in the country. We're also one of the most uh, we have one of the most wor- one of the worst racial disparities in our prisons in the country. Um, we have uh, been arresting people for low level drug penalties um, for uh, in in droves, right? And um, and that's what led to some of our work in marijuana legalization and, and criminal justice reform. Um, so there, there's a lot of problems here, and there's a lot of good here, and I think the the um, the blend of that gives us a lot of uh, simultaneous challenges and opportunities.
0: It's, uh, when you read about the history of the state that I love so much, it's like you say, people don't, you don't think like New Jersey and racial issues. A lot of times I think it's easy to go, Oh, well, we're a Northern state. So we were on the right side of history in the civil war. But then you really read about New Jersey's history. You go, if I remember right, this was the last Northern state to actually end its slavery. I think we were the last Northern sl- state with slaves actually held in bondage. You look at, you know, I'm right now I'm like becoming very fascinated with Newark. Yeah. I grew up in the suburbs of Newark and I've been thinking about it so hard. And this podcast has had, had my gears turning so hard and I'm reading a history right now, Where you read it? Oh, Nork was an intense supporter. It was actually a very much a stronghold of people who supported the South because they were doing so much business selling leather and shoes and all these products down south. And there's pockets of New Jersey that were very much going. Why are we burning our bridges with the economic, you know, windfalls we get from the South? It's always been, it's always been right there under the surface of the state. Let alone state that changes so fast, a state that maybe because of its proximity to New York and Philly, as with so many things Jersey, I feel like many historical big swings of immigrant uh, populations that come through in waves throughout history and that creates its own sort of displacement and tension and shifting things. It really is right there. And I want to just, I'm rambling, but I just want to echo what you said of I love this state as much as anybody, but when you read about the history, you don't have to get too far under the surface to see that there's been very tense, very much a beautiful, everyone is with everybody around each other. And also there's been tension that has historically come with that and, not always, and it has not always resolved itself in pleasant ways in this state. It's brutal.
1: Uh, I mean, Newark is a perfect example, right? Like we, the ACLU of New Jersey has um, always been located in Newark. um, And we've, you know, so the ACLU National has been around for 100 years. ACLU of New Jersey has been around for a little over 60 years now. Um, So we were there uh, in 1967, 68 with the uh, Newark Rebellion. Um, We have been calling for police accountability in Newark ever since the 60s. Um, and, uh, and, and we're still located in downtown Newark. Um, so we, we continue to be a big part of the fabric of that city and have seen its evolution over time and the different sorts of leadership that we've seen in Newark and, and the different priorities each mayor and each administration brings. Uh, but Newark is an example, right? Like it's, it's, it's a big example, but it's a, it's an example of some of the issues, um, facing many of New Jersey cities. I grew up uh, in Mercer County in uh, Lawrence, New Jersey, which is equidistant between Trenton and Princeton. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I am neither white nor black, as you can tell. Um, and, and growing up as a South Asian kid in a community that was, um, you know, on the outskirts of Trenton on one hand, on the outskirts of Princeton on the other, people didn't really know what to do with me, right? Like people were like, you don't quite fit the mold of what it means to be from Trenton and you don't quite fit the mold of what it means to be from Princeton. And even in that community, I remember distinctly people having these like, um, fiefdoms and, and relations with where they fell geographically and how that correlated to their socioeconomic status. And we're talking about, a 15 minute drive, maybe at most between yeah. Trenton and Princeton. Right. Um, and it's one road that leads you there. And, um, and, and we, uh, I remember kids growing up thinking, you know, uh, or identifying with either uh, being from South Lawrence or North Lawrence. And we're like, I was like, that blows my mind. Like <laughs> I, I grew up on this street called Allen Lane, which is right in the middle. And it was sort of a perfect allegory for, um, for my racial identity too. Right. Like, because people didn't really know, um where uh uh you know as an indian kid i would fall in the unjust racial hierarchy of our country um and so i had to grapple with that all my life and i continue to as a civil rights leader in our state you know people don't know what to do with the indian kid that shows up um in civil rights conversations because we don't traditionally think about asian american or south asian communities when you think about civil rights and and liberties yet we're what 11% of the population in new jersey
0: right and and growing and massively influential. And I know, uh, Peter Genovese who we've interviewed on the, on the podcast who writes for the ledger and gets to do a lot of their food writing. He's just announced they're now, uh, they're about to put out their list of the top 25 Indian restaurants in New Jersey. And I'm like, between, you know, you look at Jersey city, you look at, at Edison and Middlesex County and you just go, this is again, a thing that probably when I was a kid, I think Parsippany as well is another place where you go, mm-hmm. these are towns where when I was a kid, you probably wouldn't have looked at them and said, oh, those are South Asian communities. And now I'm 40 years old. And I think people look at those and go, oh, thriving South Asian neighborhoods and communities. You go, man, this state welcomes people. It, people show up. There's opportunities here. Places change fast. That's beautiful. How? It's one of the things, it's so funny because I grew up on Allen Street in West orange and a very similar thing where that town people even back in the nineties would point to West orange and go, it's one of the most diverse towns. There's 40 languages spoken in our high school. I I had a diversity in the nineties that people now bring up as like an aspirational goal with the types of people. But I think back to how that was handled and how things were not embraced as positives and maybe sometimes ignored instead Where you have, what you really have is a town that, like you say, if you're in a certain neighborhood, your elementary school was built in the 1800s and it's falling apart. And if you're in a different neighborhood, it was built in the 1960s and it's just a better facility. And it's not fair. You have a lunchroom in high school where now the whole town's together. So it's no longer this neighborhood by neighborhood, like fiefdoms, like you say. But now you're in a lunchroom where there are legitimately some kids who got brand new cars on their 17th birthday And then across the lunchroom. And I'm not saying this, this is not theoretical. This is an actual thing I experienced of, well, there's a table full of kids who have all immigrated from Haiti within the past two years. And some of them are on food assistance at the school. And we're in the same lunchroom. Now that should be a beautiful thing. And that should be a source of strength for everybody in that situation. In New Jersey, if we want to talk reality, due to old ways, due to hanging on to stereotypes, due to all sorts of reasons that relate to not wanting to mess up property values and taxes, all this financial nonsense. I don't know that it's, it was fully embraced in my era. And I hope that moving forward, this is embraced as the positive that it is and not allowed to be the source of tension that we've seen it so, so often become. Agreed. If that makes
1: sense. Totally. Makes sense. I mean, it, it has impacts on on um, graduation rates it has impacts on school funding it has impacts on social and economic opportunities for kids lives and um, and that's really really important one more point about the South Asian community in the in in the state Um, you know the the way I knew that we were um, a a population not to mess with was when um, uh, recently like in the past five years or so uh, you know, there's a, there's a grocery store chain called Patel brothers. Oh, of course. Um, that's everywhere. Uh, and they opened up Patel brothers in East Windsor, New Jersey, close to where my mom now lives. Uh, it's in the same shopping mall or strip mall and right next door to a target. And I was like, oh, we have, we have arrived. It. Yeah. You've arrived. arrived in the most capitalistic sense of the word we've arrived. Um, <laughs> yes. so, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's things like that in a in a community that, uh, probably, you know, 15 years ago did not have, um, you know, a robust Indian population at all. Um, we now have uh, a, a huge Indian population. We have, um, you know, in, just down the street from that Patel Brothers on, in Robbinsville is the country's biggest Indian Temple, uh, the biggest mandir in the, in the country, um, uh, which has its own set of problems. There's a whole bunch of uh, allegations there that, uh, that you know, we, we don't have to get into. But, like, there's, there's just a lot of stuff happening in this community, both good and bad, and it's growing, and our relevance can't be denied. Um, but I work, um, you know, uh, I, I think about my identity every, every day um, and, and what it means to be a South Asian kid working on civil rights issues in New Jersey. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, I work for the ACLU, which uh, works on behalf of everybody, and we we, uh, represent the constitutional rights of everyone, regardless of their racial or religious or other identity, um, and we want to make sure that we're truly striving towards a a more equal and more just state.
0: I also wonder, there's always a part of me – because I have to ask about the recent election because I'm sure it affects – You immensely, and what they the ACLU has to just at the very least be keeping up a barometer to see how all these things are affected. I always felt like when Jack Chittorelli, when you'd watch debates, he'd constantly bring up Parsippany, Parsippany, Parsippany. Mm -hmm. There's always a part of me that finds it so interesting to go, you can when you learn enough about places, and then you start to see which places that politicians name drop, you go, oh. they're kind of sending coded messages to different pockets of new jersey and different communities and different you're sitting here going oh you're trying to ally yourselves with x type of person or you know x y and z type of it's it's really it's really so strange to see. Like You feel like when you bring up a certain town, you're pointing to a certain And it, there's a part of me that watches it and goes, oh, right, I've read that there's a real push and pull over the South Asian community and Democrat, Republican, so many small business owners who Republicans appeal to, social justice that Democrats appeal to. And I, I know that even nationally, it became a huge voting block and there's coded messaging. It's wild. But I, I have to ask you, that election... Watching those results unfold, intense and weird for all of us. I can imagine weirder for you than me. You see that it kind of sort of went Ocean County is Ocean County, Essex County is Essex County, and now how does everything else crumble? That kind of felt like what we were watching as the map came in. Steve Sweeney is still not conceding, but a power broker. Matt Friedman's been on the show before, so he's he's, explain, he's a political reporter writes really great stuff at Politico and broke it down to me how there's so many machines, some that get a lot of things done in a positive way, some that fit the traditional machines thing has to affect how the ACLU at least navigates Trenton. And I'm wondering coming out of this election, seeing how things broke, how they were so much closer than we thought, seeing that the dynamics of power shifted so hard with the Sweeney news how is this affecting aclu related issues in jersey right now
1: really good question and i've been thinking about that a lot um well first of all uh just a quick side notes uh sweeney conceded 2 hours ago he did um, so yeah so as of this recording uh sweeney uh uh conceded 2 hours Whoa. ago um and so Ed Durr is now the uh, uh going to be the senator from um from that district um so how does this affect ACLU issues? Look, ACLU is a nonpartisan organization. So we don't think about it in terms of Democrats and Republicans. We think about it in terms of policy. uh, Where are the policy cards going to fall going forward? Uh, What I'm concerned about is this. um, All the reports talked about The election being a narrow one uh, for governor. And uh, and what we're seeing more and more is that the election wasn't as narrow as initially reported. Right. Like when we count all the ballots and all that, uh, Murphy is up by something like two and a half to three percent now. and, And the margin continues to get bigger. Um, so, and, you know, from what I understand, uh, I don't know my history as well as others might, but I think he's the first democratic governor to be reelected in something like 40 years or, or, or at least I since 1977.
0: Since, that's is what that right? I as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is, um, w- w- which is just amazing. So he has, um, you know, overcome a couple of obstacles that he had against him because New Jersey routinely votes for the party that's not in the white house. Um, and, uh, and for him to, to get through that is, is a big deal. How does this affect us? Um, you know, what I'm concerned most about, what's top of mind, and I'll be perfectly candid, is the uh, implication that the election was somehow a referendum on policy. Um, the implication that we now need to retreat from progressive values because clearly there's a lot of Republicans in the state. Um, And I think that's a mistake. I think it would be a huge mistake for Murphy or anybody else to say we were getting too left and now we need to start reining it in and start thinking about, um, let's be frank, uh, quote unquote, white issues. Um, And 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 that really concerns me um, because, you know, I've even seen messaging from. Uh, lawmakers and other folks that say, like, we're going to start thinking about kitchen table issues and affordability and uh, things like that. And I hope what's not what's uh, uh, not lost here is that look, socioeconomic status and race are inextricably intertwined in this country, um, and we can't think about affordability and and uh, and and making sure that cost of living is reasonable for people without putting a racial justice lens on that. Right? Like, it's not the people that are the wealthiest that have trouble accessing abortion. It's not people that are the wealthiest that have trouble uh, with the police, right? Like it's police accountability affects everybody, but it perhaps affects most significantly black and brown people, and especially people in poor communities. Um, So I hope that people don't continue to view the election as a policy referendum. And if we followed that logic, it would mean that the people that lost in the election um, were the pe- the incumbents that lost in the election? Excuse me. Uh, were people that were the most ardent supporters of progressive policy? And without naming any names, I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, I think what we saw was that yeah, there was a resurgence of of right leaning folks in this country and in this state, um, and uh, and there was more voter turnout because a base was enthused. And I think what that we need to do is. Make sure that those people that believe in ACLU issues, you know, we call them ACLU voters, are, are driving, um, are, are, we're driving turnout. Like we're getting people to vote on ACLU values. Um, and, and that's going to have an impact on, on um, how elections shake out. But I also think that, you know, we give, we hoard a lot of power in individuals in the state. Um, uh you know the senate presidency is a perfect example uh the senate president gets to unilaterally decide in many instances what uh legislation gets through um and and that and it gets to decide the process behind legislation gets to decide the subject matter um and it's a real powerful position uh for the legislature um and and i think that's uh, you know in in some cases in many cases i think that's uh, problematic. I think we, what we need is um, you know, more democracy in our demo- democratic institutions. Like we, we need to make sure that more people have a say in what legislation and policy looks like. We need to make sure that um, the process reflects uh, fair policymaking uh, because, you know, as we've seen on numbers of occasions, um, you know, introducing a bill hours before it's heard uh, in hearing. And then the public has really no idea what's going on. Uh, this happened with marijuana legalization. It's happened with many other issues. Um, it's just unfair, right? Like the public needs to be a vocal participant in policymaking in this state. And, uh, and we have yet to achieve that.
0: I want to, first of all all of that is like a slam dunk and I'm very happy to hear that you're focused on it. And that the, every, anytime I hear the ACLU is on the case on something, I always take a deep breath and go, thank, thank God. This uh, organization does what it does. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to hear all that. I want to jump out towards the beginning of, of your answer to, cause I love that you said we shouldn't retreat from progressivism in New Jersey, especially because, and look, I've never hidden my politics in my work. I'm pretty liberal um, I'm an artist, like I, I fit the mold. I'm an Essex <laughs> County guy, like, you know, it is what it is. But that being said, one thing you mentioned earlier was policing issues. Historically in the state, not the best. There's a couple of infamous incidents, but there's this phrase that nationally has become so divisive, defund the police. Now, I think it's become clear that this has become a politicized phrase and some people – hate it and some people promote it and it's funny. But if you think about, if you remove that phrase from it and you go redefine the role of police or restructure how police are funded to allow for different types of policing, these are things that are harder to argue with. And in New Jersey, I think you will know a lot more about this than I do. I've actually read multiple articles suggesting that people look to Camden's policing system as a potential form of restructured policing that people are asking for. And I, I believe Nork recently had the first year in recent memory where no police discharged their weapon for a year. I may be misremembering yeah. that, but I think two of our largest cities have had some sort of victories with relations between community and the police that people point to. So in Jersey, we're kind of setting the bar. Why would we move backwards on that now?
1: so you 're right, Newark had in two thousand twenty uh, there was no officer that discharged a weapon, however, I think it was like the first day of two thousand twenty one that somebody did um, wow. and, uh, and you know Camden um, was seen as uh, a uh, model for uh, policing when you know a new police chief, Scott Thompson, came into town and um, and took over. Um, and, you know, really took some steps in redefining what use of force should look like in that community. Uh, and that was really powerful. We were helpful in, in advising some of the policies that came out of that moment. Um, but one thing that, you know, I think could have been better in Camden and, and this is a lesson for every municipality across the state is, um, listening to the residents of that community, right? Like making sure that we are fitting the model of policing to meet the needs of residents in that community. In Newark, um, we have been advocating for, we have been advocating for and continue to advocate for a robust, uh, civilian complaint review board for decades. Decades. This is a
0: famous issue in Newark. And right. The town has drawn a line and said, no civilian review board, which seems to me, Just as putting politics aside, that seems like a hard thing to argue against, let alone for decades.
1: Well, let me uh, just add a correction there. So the the city has been okay with it; they've actually welcomed it. The unions. It's the unions. Yes. 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 Um, So so we um, uh, so long story short, in um, 2011, we petitioned to the Department of Justice to uh, look into Newark's policing practices. Like we 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 talked about, we filed a complaint with the Department of Justice. Um, asking them to investigate because there was a lot of police force being used. There was a lot of racial discrimination. There was a lot of profiling. Uh, We documented hundreds of instances of of, uh, uh, police misconduct uh, that went unaddressed. Um, There was zero transparency. Um, You know, internal affairs complaints, if they were sustained, uh, were sustained a fraction of the time, like one in hundreds would be sustained, um, and this was something that we thought was really problematic. So we, we went to the Department of Justice um, and to the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, which was pretty robust under Obama. And they used a tool called a consent decree to enter into an agreement with the, uh, with the uh, city in question. And so after years of investigation, the Department of Justice entered into a consen- consent decree with Newark, uh, calling for changes to police practices and um, assigning a federal monitor uh, to keep an eye on things in Newark as they developed their policies and and reframed how what public engagement looked like. Uh, coming out of this was a conversation around a civilian complaint review board. So um, it, it, under the leadership of, of uh, then-Mayor Cory Booker, but then transitioning to uh, now-Mayor Raz Baraka, we were able to embrace the idea of a Civilian Complaint, complaint Review Board and formulate a concept for perhaps the most robust uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board in the country, and that included things like um, community-based representation. So you have a body that uh, has community members and organizations making it up so that the, so that there's actual representation from the ground. Um, it included the ability to run concurrent investigations so that we don't have to wait for an internal uh, affairs complaint to process before a civilian review board can start investigating. And thirdly, it included subpoena power, um, the ability to call witnesses and make sure that uh, you are compelling testimony when police officers or others are refusing to comply. Uh, of course, immediately the police union sued uh, when when we got the Civilian Review Board, it was locked up in litigation for a long time. Uh, it still exists. It is a body that exists. Um, it, it, but it's been told that it can't have subpoena power, which we think is a crucial, crucial part of this model. Um, and so uh, uh, w- what we're doing now is demanding that the state pass a policy, um, a, a law at the state level, that allows for civilian review boards to exist with subpoena power uh, to really do what the Supreme Court of New Jersey told us, uh, which is that we got to get the state out of the way. The state is uh, is doesn't authorize currently under current law, doesn't authorize subpoena power for these review bodies. But if they did, that's a different question. We'd be in a different posture. Um, so we're uh, lobbying the state um, uh, lawmakers across the state to to push for civilian review boards with subpoena power. So that we can have one more measure of accountability, right? It's not going to solve everything. Um, it's not going to end police misconduct, but at least there will be a place where civilians can go um, and say, "Look, this police officer or this unit in a police department did something that I found to be awful. They they you know abused me. They there was misconduct, etc., etc." And you know, and create a mechanism so that it's not just internal affairs. It's not just police policing themselves. Um, It's an outside body making recommendations about discipline uh, to the police department so that we can actually have um, a meaningful uh, oversight mechanism where currently really none exists. Um, And in Newark, the Civilian Review Board that we currently have, uh, of course, is doing great work. We have a representative on it. Um, But uh, uh, I think it's a little hamstrung by the fact that it's not allowed to have subpoena power right now.
0: Well, in some ways I would imagine it almost, I would have to imagine one of the things that can happen in areas that are suppressed by police or oppressed by police is what I meant to say is you have people who start to throw their hands up and go, why bother? This game is rigged. So why even bother? So if you have a toothless review board, in some ways I imagine that could almost be more psychologically damaging to a community community than having none at all to go, well, there's a, you gave us a paper tiger that can't do anything.
1: Perfect. Yeah. That's a a very apt observation. You know, a review board without power is worse than a review board, than no review board at all. Um, Because what you end up having is the appearance of accountability without accountability at all. I call it accountability theater. Um, You know, you, you, you've set up something that people, Oh, that's uh, a great uh, term. Yeah. People, um, act like they, they, they've done something right in communities and they have accountability. Um, but really, um, you don't really invest in it, nor do you give it the power it needs to succeed.
0: I tell you what, this is a tangent, but I, in my, in my real life, am a comedian. And that means that I'm in a couple entertainment unions. And I think of it, I go, I'm a union guy, but I'm in like the cushy entertainment unions, but I have to just put on record I was really proud to be a member of the Writers Guild of America East. They were the first ones who stepped up and said, I don't know if we're comfortable being in the AFL-CIO with police unions. It's weird. It's not the same type of union. They're kind of hiding under our umbrella, but they do a lot of anti-union stuff. The idea that this union is so strong and the AFL-CIO brand helps strengthen it, but they use it to stop things like exactly what you're talking about, civilian review, WGA, I was really proud to be a member. I'm like, oh, we're a bunch of like nerdy writers, it's a <laughs> bunch of a lot of people who look like me, white guys with glasses and big foreheads, but who stepped up. And I think actually, I was like, pretty proud, pretty proud.
1: Yeah. As, um, a, as a brown guy with a big forehead, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> we, are uh, united. We, united. we are united. United. Um, now, you, you're absolutely right. Like, look, if police unions were the sort of labor union that advocated for, you know, fair pay and, and, and appropriate benefits and things like that, then yeah, great, do that. Police officers need that too. However, what we see is that they are more so a political body. Um, they uh, obstruct uh, uh, pro- progress and reform every step of the way. Uh, they defend bad actors every step of the way. So even if you buy into this bad apple uh, conversation, what the police unions do is they are there by the side of people that kill people, right. And and are are defending them uh, to make sure that they're not out of a job. And, and I'm thinking about other unions, like, you know, if, if a labor union saw that a cashier was, was taking money at the end of their shift every single day, I think the labor union would be in a hard, (laughs) in a hard position to argue that that person shouldn't be fired. I I don't think they would do that. And, um, and I think, You know, um, uh, it's it's really unfortunate that police unions are as powerful as they are, because what they end up doing is um, is serving the interests of uh, maintaining power and control over communities rather than working with communities. And it kind of is. Um, uh, contradictory to the notion of public safety, um, because what they're doing is preserving status quo and not listening to communities. And I'm I'm really concerned about the power that the police unions have, um, not just to oppose uh, legislation, but the power they have on our elections and the power they have to roll b- back progress. So you know, while you know people may agree or disagree with the concept of defund the police, um, the the idea is reimagining policing so that, um, you know, first of all, we're asking way too much of our police officers, right? Every situation doesn't necessarily require an an armed police officer to enter in order to resolve it. Um, you know, every discomfort in society doesn't require a police officer. Um, so we're asking them to be not just first responders, but, you know, uh, psychotherapists. We're asking them to be drug counselors. We're asking them to be, um, you know, uh, animal experts. <laughs> like we're asking them to do yeah. way too much. Yeah. And, and I think, um, it, it is, uh, it would be a mistake to not utilize this moment. Although I think some, you know, in some instances, the moment has kind of like passed because we were already, you know, people are, are retreating from, um, the, uh, uh, the energy that we had after George Floyd was killed. This, uh, I think
0: this election was a sobering,
1: yeah, that's yeah. one of the more
0: sobering things of going, oh, that that momentum is altered, if not gone, in a way that's very sad to see well, how quickly that happened.
1: I was talking to a friend of mine who is, um, who, who, who is a representative in a municipality, and he was telling me that, uh, uh, look, when they do the municipal budget, they are able to transfer a dollar from any department to another department or cut funding to any department except for policing. They cannot touch Uh. the police budget. And that to me is not just, you know, forget about social justice, right? It's just bad budgeting. It's bad fiscal policy. (laughs) If you have any department that doesn't have accountability for every dollar spent, then we're making a mistake. Um, So what we need to do is scrutinize police budgets and think about exactly where it is that we're spending money uh, and what that means. What are the life-affirming resources that we can invest in so that we don't have some of these bad outcomes that we're seeing across the state and across the country? Um, and, And maybe we'd be better off if we invested in social workers or first responders that were trained to deal with emotionally disturbed people um, you know, and, uh, and and people that actually, you know, sometimes all all somebody needs is a tow truck, right? Like they they may right, not need right. a police officer to handle a situation, and so often we've seen, you know, that need for a tow truck escalate into somebody dying, um, and that's a that's a problem.
0: And one thing that is so true in New Jersey that I've heard quoted, um, I I think again a divisive name, I, I believe. My former rep, when I lived in Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, one thing you have to keep in mind is when you're breaking down the system, it's not revolutionary. It actually probably feels familiar to so many people listening to it because it's what a lot of the suburbs already have. Like when I, I, I had a bat in my attic, we yeah. thought, we heard something up there. I called the town. I go, can I have the number for animal control? They go, we don't actually have our own animal control. We'll send an officer. Officer shows up. He sticks his head in my attic. He goes, I don't see anything, but here's who we contract for animal control. Give him a call. This is who the town uses. I don't hate that cop. I'm not an irrational person. I don't think that that, I also think he probably doesn't need to be handling the bat in my attic. And he sent out there as a token gesture. And then he just hands me the number for animal control. That's weird. Like. But that's what life is like where I live out in the sticks in Morris County. Now Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's one of those things too. And it's so pronounced in Jersey to like you said, policing in Trenton is way different than policing in Princeton. And if you want to pretend it's not, you are being obtuse for whatever deep seated stuff. You're not ready to, you're not ready to vomit up this thing and excise it from the system yet. I grew up in Essex County and I'm sorry, Everybody knows the way police are treating teenage kids in Irvington and East Orange is different than they're treating teenage kids in Short Hills and Livingston and the Caldwells it's just and if you don't want to admit that that's true, you're not ready to have a real conversation.
1: let me give you an example real quick I mean of, of your point uh, you know about two and a half years ago during the same weekend um, there was a uh, th- th- There was a guy that was killed in Patterson. He was under police custody. He died. Still, I think we are unclear as to what exactly happened. A young black man in Patterson died um, in police custody. And at following that, there was a lot of understandable calls for accountability, like what happened here? Um, and so, Black Lives Matter, Patterson uh, led these protests outside of City Hall in Patterson, and they were um, uh, leading these this week long of action, right? Like this, this these events day after day, uh, culminating in one weekend on a Saturday. When that Saturday, there was also a, a counter protest in Princeton, New Jersey, um, uh, that was counter to. Uh, an announcement that there was going to be some sort of like neo-Nazi group or something like that protesting in Princeton, right? Like there were there were these flyers all over Princeton that said it's okay to be white. Join us in this like in this uh, protest. Anyway, so the community in Princeton beautifully, rightfully organized this counter protest to what they thought was going to happen there, um, and um, and. Uh, Long story short, the neo-Nazis or the white supremacists never showed up in Princeton, but there was this awesome uh, display of thousands of people coming together uh, with signs um, saying the same things that were being said in Patterson. No justice, no peace. Uh, There was some chance of F the police that were happening, Um, and there was a lot of energy and solidarity around diversity and unity in Princeton. Meanwhile, in Patterson, same activity was happening, right? Protests were occurring. People were chanting, no justice, no peace. And they were marching from the uh, city hall uh, to the police station. And immediately they get swarmed by police officers. Uh, and the Black Lives Matter leaders uh, were arrested. And we're now representing them in a First Amendment case um, because they were arrested for what we think is constitutionally protected activity, protesting in public. Nobody got arrested in Princeton. Uh, The police actually set up barricades um, because they knew that there was going to be a a big demonstration. And they set up barricades and let people onto public streets where cars were supposed to be. And they closed roads so that people could protest. That didn't happen in Patterson, even though they knew that there was a week of protests and they knew that uh, people were were, uh, uh, feeling something and they needed a, a space to express it. Um, and so what we have in New Jersey is Princeton, which is one of the more white and more affluent communities in the country, uh, being able to engage in their First Amendment protected activity. The Patterson, one of the poorest and uh, most uh, black and Arab and Latinx communities in the country, unable to have the same First Amendment rights. And so this notion that we have that everybody has constitutional rights, everybody's protected, sometimes those constitutional rights you know they don't occur in a vacuum they they are dependent on who you are, the message that you are delivering, and the money that you have and um, And we're here as the ACLU to disrupt that a little bit because as we know, um, you know w- we cannot have a fair and just state unless everybody can
0: participate in it. Now here this segues perfectly into something that I've been kind of quietly obsessing over. And I love that we're talking right now because it's been on my mind and it ties into exactly what you're talking about. So almost similar, like we we had moved back to Jersey. Um, everything happened with George Floyd. My wife and I, we had been in the city in Queens in this Jackson Heights politically engaged mm-hmm. neighborhood. We're going, oh man, we would be protesting. We got to find protests. I went to one in Morristown. Um, I was very, very happy I got to go. And then my wife goes, on a because we had a baby too, so we can't leave the house at the same time because you can't get babysitters, COVID, blah, blah, blah. My wife goes, oh, I found one, but she doesn't know Jersey like I do. She didn't grow up here. She goes, it's in Milburn. I yeah. went, there's a Black Lives Matter protest in Milburn. I go, this makes me feel like something's actually happening. Because if it's extending as far as Milburn, I mean, Milburn and Short Hills, everybody knows the Short Hills Mall. This is an affluent area. I go, okay, that's this is potentially huge if protests are reaching Milburn over a man being murdered in Minneapolis. That's wild. Now, here's the next question. I bring up Milburn, part of Essex County. You bring up Princeton and Patterson. I feel like so many of the things that you mentioned up top as far as the ACLU's priorities, they extend to everybody. But as we keep saying, they are most problematic in some of our cities. We're also in this weird state where like that protest in Melbourne, those protesters are maybe a 15 to 20 minute drive from a protest in Newark. Mm -hmm. There's areas of Patterson where the suburbs right next door are pretty affluent. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally believe that I am part of a generation of New Jerseyans who were taught to fear the cities of New Jersey. I think Jersey City has had its gentrification, its Brooklyn-y vibe. So I'll leave Jersey City out of it. I think it's a different case study at this point. But Newark, Patterson, Camden, Trenton, they have a lot in common. They also have schools that have suffered. They have drinking water issues that have suffered. They have police issues that the suburbs don't have. A lot of the things you listed up top, you want to talk marijuana legalization, I would argue probably is going to affect a lot of decriminalization is going to affect a lot more people in the urban areas than the suburbs. It's not rocket science. I fundamentally believe that if we could reframe and repair the relationships between those four cities and their suburbs, New Jersey would have a renaissance culturally, economically. It's something I wonder if you thought about the white flight that placed a lot of people with roots in those cities just outside of those cities. And then like in the North rebellion literally the bridges were drawn up. I believe it was in Harrison. They literally put the drawbridges up so people couldn't get there during the, when there was rioting happening. Yeah, yeah. How do we get the people who care to go to the cities to care? The cities are 15 minutes away. How, if those people, if the Patterson police, we're messing with people who it was later revealed didn't live in Patterson, but they lived 15 minutes away from Patterson. These are the people who, and it's not right, but those people getting put in a Patterson holding cell generates a lot of negative news and a lot of disruption because it's not self-contained in Patterson where we're allowed to look the other way. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, I mean, I, the question certainly does. Um, you know, when I'm one of my biggest regrets is uh, uh, I, I, when I was in college, I wanted to study um, uh, uh, journalism and economics, and that's what I pursued. But then later in college, um, I was like, I should have studied urban studies and anthropology, um, because the question that you're asking about is, is a little bit of both of those. Um, because I, what the question to me is, how do you create meaningful relationships with cities and suburbs and the people in each Um, and how do you make sure that, you know, there, there, there are a lot of people that are going into Newark right now, moving there. Um, and, and how do you make sure it's not, uh, uh, you know, carpetbaggery, right? Like, how do you make sure it's not. I talked with
0: the governor about this when we interviewed him on the show and it was, I, I've brought it up too in another interview I did with a friend of mine from Newark. He had an answer I loved where he was like, so many people left that city that the infrastructure's there and we feel like that infrastructure's waiting for people and we don't need to display. And I, I was like, okay, I'll buy it. I hope it happens. It's a good answer. I hope it happens. <laughs> I, I hope, hope so that too. I hope the people who have been there when Newark was a stigmatized place don't get kicked out now that it feels like the it feels like the cool factor is starting to spill over. I hope.
1: And you know, your, your, your point about Jersey city um, facing, you know, a new, new era. Yeah, that's true, but only for certain parts, right? Like the downtown Jersey city area is thriving in a lot of ways. Uh, But if you go to, yeah, Grove street. Street. Um, And, and, you know, I I was, I was living in that area for a, a few years, but if you go to Newark Ave in the, in the South Asian part of Jersey city or in, uh, the the Latina part of Jersey City or, um, you know, the black part near Greenville in Jersey City. And, um, and, and, you know, those places are still, you know, economically underdeveloped. They're, they're mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. Uh, not getting the investment in their communities or in their schools that they deserve. Um, the real estate developers that are building there aren't necessarily considering the community's needs um, and how to make sure that we're not displacing people. Um, so all of those problems still apply. Jersey City is huge. Um, that's why I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. It's like many, many square miles bigger than um, most other cities. Um, and as uh, a contender, I think they're neck and neck, Newark and Jersey City, to figure out who's the biggest.
0: Um, it's... also. It, I hate to say it, so much as Jersey comes down to real estate, too, yeah. doesn't it? So much of it is real. Like Jersey City basically managed to frame itself as another borough of New York. And that's yeah. why I, that's why I kind of consider it a yeah. different case study than Camden and Patterson. They Jersey have, city was like, we got the path trains. You can live yeah. here instead of Brooklyn. It's a little cheaper.
1: they've it's, got an economic engine just like kind of built in right, right where it's a little harder for other cities that are that are more inland, right? Um and uh, and you know, Patterson, um, you know, is an amazing community um, uh, and it's thriving in a lot of ways that uh, they've heard. I, I, I mean, there's it. so much culture there and so much beauty there. The great falls. The great the falls, great
0: falls, great right, falls, right there. I said, I said that to the governor too. I go, how are we not turning the great falls into tourist money? Cause the amount of people I knew who grew up in Jersey who have never been there. Yeah. It's jaw dropping. It's a jaw droppingly beautiful, natural wonder. You got to be able to turn that into money, Mr. Murphy. Let's go.
1: Oh, let me bring it back to the criminal legal system a little bit. Uh, Part of uh, the reason why the cities in New Jersey have faced some decrease in population is because those are the places where people are arrested the most. Mm -hmm. And um, and part of the reason why we've seen a lack of of civic engagement from those cities is because they are the cities that are the police the most, right? Like they are, the, you know, really, really um, devastated by policing in a way that I don't think the suburbs have ever felt, to your point, right? Like policing looks really different in Patterson than it does in Short Hills or elsewhere. Um, I live, uh, uh, you know, close to Montclair right now. Um, policing looks very different in Montclair and Glen Ridge than it does in um, in Newark um, and, and Irvington. Um, and, you know, I think there's a <laughs> also- real...
0: One of the, sorry to interrupt, but just because we're talking about my neck of the woods, I'm like, I grew up on West Orange. Yeah. Policing in parts of Montclair look different than policing in other parts of Montclair. Policing in West Orange, that depends on which, are you up the hill or down the hill? Policing looks different. Are you in upper
1: Montclair or closer to Bloomfield, right? If
0: you're down where Montclair meets Orange and you're walking around at night with a hoodie on. Yeah. It's a little different than what's going to happen if you're up there back behind the art museum off of Bloomfield Ave.
1: Exactly. It just is. Yeah. And, um, and I think it all ties into race and it all ties into socioeconomic status. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of at the ACLU is that, um, look when, when COVID hit and we knew that it was going to be a thing in um, the United States, Uh, we were all like scrambling and figuring out what we were going to do, right? And how our priorities would change. One of the things that we announced and, and knew and articulated was that COVID was going to be a racial justice issue. We knew that it was going to, look, every institution in American society suffers from systemic racism. And when you add a layer of a global pandemic on top of that, of course those disparities are gonna be exacerbated. Um, And so we uh, started looking at where we ought to focus our attention, you know, and, um, and how do we make sure that people who are most vulnerable are protected? And who are the last people that the government is going to be thinking about in terms of protections afforded them? And so we decided to focus some of our energy, among other things, but focus some of our energy on helping people who are incarcerated. Um, because prisons and jails, they weren't designed with social distancing in mind, right? Like they were designed with the idea to warehouse people in close right. quarters and and uh, and make sure that that you know we are we are just storing people for extended periods of time. And so the things that we could do on the outside world to protect ourselves, like socially distance, wear masks, use hand sanitizer, those things proved to be unfeasible in prisons because you know, um social distancing didn't exist. and, Uh, You know, people weren't given masks initially. Hand sanitizer was considered contraband because it was alcohol based. And there was a lot of problems there. Um, And so we started looking into this and learned very quickly that New Jersey had the worst rate of COVID related death in its prisons in the country. And couple that with the fact that we have the worst black, white racial disparities in our prisons in the country Um, What we knew then was that black people were dying at a higher rate in prison because of COVID, something that could have been at least in some part preventable, right, if protections were taken. Um, uh, And we had more deaths. People came to me and were like, well, you're in the epicenter, right? Like you're in the New York metro area. Of course, you're going to have a higher rate. We had more deaths than New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania combined, um, in our prisons. And and some of that may be bad luck, but a lot of it was because we didn't respond fast enough. And so what we did was we, we, we used all of our tools to try to figure out how to help people talk to public health experts, talk to criminal justice experts. Everybody told us the same thing, that the best way to um, make sure that you're helping people in prison be, against this virus is to reduce the number of people in prison. And so we uh, built uh, litigation and legislation Um, that led to the early release of people who were going to be released within a year. And we got, ultimately, in the past year, um, the law went into effect. The law that we advocated for went into effect. We called it the Public Health Emergency Credit. That went into effect on November 4th, 2020. uh, And it it had, on a rolling basis, led to the release of many people. On November 4th, 2020, we saw Uh, something like 2,258 people released from prison in one day. Uh, And over the next 12 months, we've seen a total of that number has climbed to 5,343 people released from prison early uh, because of the public health emergency. And that's led to, contributed to a reduction of our prison population by 42%. Um, And this is why I say New Jersey can be leading the country in yeah. progressive values, because everybody's talking about mass incarceration. Uh, nobody's doing as much as we get to do. Um, and and that's really exciting. But sometimes what I'm really concerned about is that that story gets lost in the transactional politics of our state, right? That story yeah. gets lost in the murkiness of New Jersey's political waters. Um, and uh, And I think it's something that You know, our state and the governor and um, every lawmaker that supported it should really embrace and say, look, we are actually cutting the prison population by almost half in this state. We are the leading decarcerator in the country. We have fewer people in prison as compared to our population than any other state in the nation. And that's huge. That's remarkable. We're giving people chances at opportunity of freedom that other places don't get to give.
0: It is. And I also just want to say too, I just want to take a deep breath of mind and go in conversations like this, you're talking about sort of like broad theoretical topics, you're talking about percentages, facts and figures so often and numbers. Yeah. But I just want to take a deep breath and just say, first of all, thank you. And I hope that you also I hope that you and your and your teams at the ACLU also get time to slow down in this meat grinder of a state. Because when you say, oh, there's 5,000 people, they were going to be released from prison. We managed to get some stuff through that allowed them to have their cases reviewed early. They were able to go to physically safer places during COVID. Like that's very real. This is not a talking point. This is not something people are shouting about on news stations. What should happen, what shouldn't happen. It did happen. And there's over 5,000 people who are safer and who get to you know The idea that someone would pass away from COVID in a prison when they're six months from being out and arbitrarily they can't get out, we can't shave two or three months off of that, and they might wind up not dying, it's just a common sense issue. So I hope that also, I know that part of your job is to go, I'm ready with the numbers, with the facts, with the figures, with the statistics and the trends, but the very important thing to think about with the work you're doing, and that's a perfect example, is it is about humanity and allowing people to retain humanity, to have their dignity, to move on with their lives, to be forward focused, to have hope. So very important human things. And it's not an exaggeration to say that story right there proves that impact. So I hope you do take time to uh, slow down. I can't, I can't imagine that your, your to-do list is ever short. Uh, so I hope that you, you get to bask in that and, and enjoy the fact that that's genuine human help as well.
1: I appreciate that so much. And um, I appreciate the gratitude and we'll pass it on to our team. And, and what I'm um, what you're, I mean, you said it better than I could. There, there are people behind each one of these policies, right? There are people's stories. I mean, w- one person that testified in support of this bill was uh, Bernice Ferguson, who lost her son, Rory Price um, in prison two weeks before his release date, two weeks before this guy was in his thirties. It was in March, 2020. Um, and he died, uh, just two weeks before he was supposed to be released. And she, knowing that she wasn't going to get her son back, knowing that every time we asked her to tell her, her story, tell us her story, she was reliving a trauma, right? Uh, perhaps the worst thing that's ever happened to her. Um, knowing that this law would never benefit her, uh, she still pushed for it and became um, sort of the one of the spokespeople for this important issue because she insisted that she didn't want to see another mother, another parent suffer the same harm that she did. Um, and and that's incredibly powerful. Right. Like it, you can have ACLU lawyers talking numbers all day, um, but confronting a mother who's lost her son and asking for some reform. Um, is really, really hard to contend with. and um, and when she testified there wasn't a dry eye in the room.
0: I can't imagine. And then the cynical mindset is for people to go, well, why is it why are we so prisoners get to go free early? these you go, no, these are humans. these are people's childrens, people's siblings, spouses. And then the other important thing, too, that I have to point out, and again, you know much better than I do. Feels to me like one of the important things to remember is well, it doesn't stop there. Yeah. You also go, how do we make people with felony convictions feel like they can participate with their voting rights? How do we? There's a business, their name has randomly come up on our show a couple of times uh, Ironbound Farms. They make hard cider and they run a farm, um, I believe, in Morris or Hundred County. I'm blanking, but people reached out to me after they were mentioned on our show and they were like, you got to read up on what these people are doing because the owner prioritizes trying to teach farming and give farming jobs to people who have convictions on their record. You go, okay, well, that's, it's not just free people. It's go free them a few months early. They still paid their penance, which seems very important. No one's denying that there's things that you do in life that send you to prison. But if you are looking to be reformed, you're looking to move on with your life. How do we make sure you can find employment? How do you make sure you feel like you can participate in political systems, in unions? And one thing about New Jersey that's really profound, it came up on the show a few weeks ago. I forget what happened. It's some random episode where we're doing some dumb comedy stuff where one of my co-hosts mentioned this idea of, In New Jersey, we're all on top of each other. Yeah, You don't get to pretend that other types of people don't exist. And sometimes you have to make an active effort to make sure that people are allowed to hold their heads up high. People are allowed to maintain their dignity. It goes a long way. Someone two weeks out in prison in their 30s passing away... Because arbitrarily, that was the date set. And there's no compassion ability to review that and say, Can we get, this person is a sterling record and we're not going to get them out of here. Like, get them out of here. Let them go live their life. It's about humi- humanity, compassion, and dignity. And in this state, you you see each other. We're too visible to each other. Like I said, any public high school, many, not any, many, many public high schools in this state. You got the rich kids, you got the poor kids, you got white kids, black kids, you got every type of person. We learn from this state how to be around other types of people. And I think it becomes vitally important that part of that process goes, how do we set the standards for allowing progress to happen specifically in the form of People being able to live lives where they feel active and dignified in their pursuit to live a good life and feed their families and all these other things that are basic. And that's the type of thing that your example about getting those 5,000 plus people out is really impactful. Now, I got to ask you, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. A couple. I got two final questions. Here's one of them. One of the popular dialogues right now in New Jersey politics is for all the national headlines about what happened in the New Jersey election, there's a lot of people going, Murphy's back and Sweeney's gone. (laughs) That might lead to some of the most progressivism possible in New Jersey, because I'm sure the inner machinations of it are not as simple as this, but popular dialogue of observers of New Jersey politics is that Steve Sweeney was actually sometimes an obstructionist to progressive legislation I imagine you have to have some opinion on
1: this. I do. And it goes back to the point I made earlier about the role of the Senate president and how important it is, right? The Senate president can unilaterally decide uh, what legislation to move forward and what not to move forward. And I think um, when you have a combination of power dynamics where um, each individual, whether it's the governor and or the Senate president, trying to vie for the position of the most powerful person in New Jersey, you get a messy situation and competitiveness that doesn't really uh, amount to productivity. And, and so what I think the opportunity is here, whoever the next Senate president is, um, they have an opportunity to press reset and say, look, I am not going to Use this to stroke my ego. I am not going to use this position to deny progressive legislation. I'm not going to use this position to deny access to civic engagement for people. What I'm going to do is create processes that are fair. We're going to post bills. Here are some concrete things they can do. We're going to post bills a week before they are heard so that they the public can view them and um, and understand what they do. Uh, we are not going to cancel hearings on a moment's notice uh, because we need to make sure that the public has the ability to voice their concerns. Uh, We're going to make sure that a budget process for the state is fair and transparent. And it's not just three men in a room making decisions on behalf of nine million people. Um, And and those are some things that I think that the Senate president, uh, whoever it is next, can embrace um, to allow for progress to move forward. And I don't mean progress in terms of ideology. Right. I'm not talking about progressive. I'm talking about progress in terms of making (laughs) sure that processes are fair. Um, and, and look, however the cards may fall, whether or not we enact uh, policy that is progressive um, is another question. And we will fight for those things as the ACLU. Uh, but doing so, you know, denying a policy without a fair process feels far worse than winning a policy uh, uh, with a, um, I don't know, I up, messed up my thing here. But I'm just saying, like, you know, making sure that processes are fair. Is, um, is absolutely paramount because otherwise everybody's going to be left questioning as uh, you know, who made the decision um, and who are the power structures that we need to appease in order to get our thing, whatever that thing is next and making sure that a fair pol- process exists will allow for policies that people feel confident in.
0: I love it. the idea that one person in the state Senate has the ability to just turn the whole machine off. Like, yeah. and I don't mean political machine. I mean like, they can literally say like, all right, we're closed for the day. Goodbye. Yeah. And I have to imagine there's probably, a, I have to, as you describe this, I'm going, oh, are there so many times where you've traveled to Trenton? Cause you're ready for something to actually happen. And then you get all the way to Trenton and they're like, nope, not happening today. Go home. Dozens. I mean, it has so to be the most times. frustrating thing in the world.
1: So and many times where hearings have been canceled. You know, we, we, you know, the marijuana legalization fight is, is, is a perfect example of this where we had, uh, we were trying to get this done through legislation. We we got it done through the ballot question. We led that campaign as the ACLU. We we um, uh, then had to enact legislation to implement the ballot question. Um, and every step of the way, we were met with obstacles. And that obstacle, those obstacles included. Uh, Things like, you know, dropping 250 pages of amendments on a Friday night for a hearing on Monday morning (sighs) or then canceling that hearing because they had more amendments that they wanted to consider. And they didn't consider those amendments until the next Friday for the next Monday's hearing. Um, And there have been so many moments where we there were starts and stops and false starts. Uh, and every step of the way, and, and I consider myself an insider, right? Like I consider myself and my organization to get access to information, and 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 we we are in there. But it was confounding and confusing even for us. Um, so I can't imagine that the average New Jerseyan was feeling good about their elected representatives or the legislature actually representing their interests.
0: And and again so many things where you erode public trust and people just go, why bother trying? I, I, I have to imagine too from you, because it's very funny, you're very good at what you do um, you. and there's clearly relationships you need to maintain and professionally I'm I'm a comedian, I'm just an idiot with an American Studies degree from Rutgers with a podcast so it's like, I also sit here and go when I connect the dots, I go if you're pushing for something and Steve Sweeney goes fine, here's 250 pages on it on Friday, be ready 8am Monday It's hard not to feel like you're being sent a message of, hey, you annoyed Steve Sweeney, so he's decided to fuck up your weekend. Like it's hard to not – I have to imagine there are many people at ACLU or otherwise, people who are trying to get things done going, I'm just trying to get a thing done. And the process is arbitrary and up to power brokers. So, And and I learned from talking with Matt Friedman too, like power broker, it's not just Steve Sweeney. They're all over the state. They're all over them. Micro, like in Essex County and a lot of people in Essex County, I'm an Essex County guy. Like I said, like Joe DiVincenzo runs Essex. This Well, we're not even trying to hide it, but you don't want to piss that guy off. And if you piss him off, your life could just be harder if you're trying to get things done. I'm not, I bring him up as an example just because he's the one I know because he's my hometown. But the, the idea that the machines are built in a way where individual people's whims and desires can dictate stuff. It's not how it should be. And people also, too much power at the top. Oh, yeah. Can't have yeah. it. Can't have it. And it's also, I'll also say another thing, too. You had said earlier some version of people's egos, people's individual interests or agenda shouldn't define this. Another sad thing that disenfranchises New Jersey voters and makes us all feel like, well, why do we bother with these people is the other side of Jersey politics, which, too, is I think you're diplomatic and not also mentioning like. A reputation of corruption in our government as well, of people who want to line their own pockets at times as well, which sadly there have been many cases. And I think it has eroded some public trust in the state. I think that we all kind of laugh about the machine politics, but there's also a dark undercurrent of, well, then every few years when you read about a public official in some pension bust or handing out no-show jobs or this, and you go... When we're talking about police reform or prison reform, when we're going, hey, the voters of this state voted to legalize marijuana, why hasn't it happened yet? And then you also have politicians where maybe the public dialogue is they're a bunch of crooks. That's a very, very, very bad combination for a healthy and active, engaged voter
1: and, um, you know, let me be real about it for a second. There are people in the legislature who are principled, who care deeply about their public service, who want to do right, uh, want to do good things. I mean, we had sponsors for that public health credit bill, right? Like those were Senator Nellie Poe and, and Assemblyman Raj Mukherjee were amazing leaders. Uh, I'll call them out by name, right? Like they were amazing leaders to get that through and they were super principled and got it done um, it's, it's just unfortunate that that kind of leadership is like a footnote to the bigger picture of murkiness and, um, and potential corruption in New Jersey politics, because there are good people here, um, that are doing the right thing, not trying to line their pockets, not trying to look out for their own selves, look out for community interests and represent their constituents. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, it, it gets, uh, Uh, outshined by uh, some of the problems that we have in our state.
0: It's a bummer. And and the last thing I want to do is wind up on the bad side of George Norcross. I hope I remain a small enough fish that he never hears my name. But (laughs) when you hear, oh, who controls New Jersey politics? And you find out, oh, it's a guy who's not even an elected official from South Jersey who has this massive sway over the whole state, never been elected, and kind of runs the joint. And so you go, that's bizarre and it makes me feel like as an individual voter I don't have much real impact and all of that corrodes public trust it's not good it's not good so uh, oh, look, again, I hope again um, Mr. Norcross I'm sure you're a great guy with money to throw around and I'm sure it's all just f- fuel causes you believe it great 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 it's a little weird to hear how this state runs and that everybody knows it and it's accepted it's weird
1: I hope um you know, some results from this election were a bit of a wake up call that that kind of dynamic doesn't work. Um, and um, and and hopefully people are rethinking what kind of democracy we want to be in New Jersey. Um, should we be one that is rigged or should we be one that is fair? Because even in the face of, you know, I'm not suggesting that it was rigged, but in, even in the face of machine politics, um you know, New Jersey faced a really tough election for some, some seats. And, um, and it's because of voter turnout, right? Like it's because people turned out regardless of how they believe people turned out. Um, and, um, and that's a really important thing. And, and I'll, it'll go, go back to my very first point about this election. Um, people turned out because they believed in, um, uh, standing up for their principles, uh, and making sure that they voted accordingly, uh, in, in, in the progressive side of things, um, we need to make sure that we embrace those progressive principles so that whenever the next election is, you know, people can trust that they're voting for people that uh, believe the same things they do. Right. Be a voter uh, that cares deeply about your uh, uh, not just who your politicians are, but what policies they will promote. Uh, and be a politician that embraces the policies and doesn't like do so grudgingly or, or like, you know, accept things because they are uh, just happening in our state and, and embrace them in your talking points. And there will be a happy marriage between the voters and the people that represent them. Otherwise we're going to continue to see elections that, um, that, you know, really scare those in power. And uh, I don't know if that's all that bad of a thing.
0: Yeah. It's a wake up (laughs) call. Now, Just in closing, I have, first of all, I'm, I'm finding myself very inspired by this conversation. I hope listeners as well on a personal level. Thanks for letting me pretend to be smart. Like I'm, uh, (laughs) bringing up random stuff I've read about and you're not even, you know, I literally took a college class where I raised a goat at cook college. Like I'm not, I am, I am an interested person and it's kind of you to, uh, Treat me as an equal in this conversation because you're a thousand times smarter than I am and more experienced. And I thank you for it.
1: You are and smart, Chris. You, I,
0: you wear glasses. I do wear glasses. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, for anybody else out here listening, who's feeling revved up going, yeah, there is a lot of stuff going on there. And there's, I'm hearing right now from the head of the ACLUNJ that actual things do change in the state when people get together and get to work. Where should these people be going to support the ACLU or other organizations that you work hand in hand with that are doing good? Are there things you want to just plug and get out there? And and let me just say, so you don't have to be tacky. A lot of it, sadly, first of all, open up the pocketbooks. We all know that money goes a long way. Donate. If there's organizations, that, I mean, the ACLU, I have donated a number of times throughout my life. Um, I'm sure that goes a long way. As far as people who want to get active grassroots, how do they? Where who do they follow? Yeah. What organizations should they be looking into? Let us know.
1: Totally. Uh, look, the AC, I'm grateful for the pitch. Um, the ACLU is um, a, is an important organization, and I hope listeners certainly check out our website ACLU-NJ.org or ACLU.org. Um, you know, there are a number of organizations that we work with regularly. I'm not going to. Do justice here, but like Salvation and Social Justice, the NAACP, League of Women Voters, the Institute for Social Justice. We just started a coalition called NJCAP, New Jersey Communities for Accountable Policing, uh, Make the Road New Jersey, uh, the Alliance for Immigrant Justice. These are all amazing organizations. Um, wind of the spirit. I can keep going. But these are all amazing organizations that do tremendous work across a whole bunch of issue areas. Um, And I hope that uh, listeners uh, take a moment to do some research because there's a lot of great activism happening in New Jersey. There's a lot of good coming out of the state. Um, And it leads to good policymaking in some instances. It leads to good results for people in some instances. But we need all the support that we can get so that we can truly be a national leader. And, And one thing that I'll just pitch um, or or leave listeners with is, look, we are in the midst of a lame duck session right now in our legislature. So the legislature came back and they're going to be convening through the end of the year and into January to decide on some really crucial pieces of legislation. Um, Everybody has probably heard about what's going on with regards to abortion rights in Texas and how Roe v. Wade may be on the hook um, you know, we have a bill in New Jersey called the Reproductive Freedom Act that will protect and expand upon abortion rights in New Jersey. Uh, right now, we have uh, no legislation that protects the right to reproductive health in New Jersey. And we're pushing for that for this lame duck session so that we can truly be a leader and show the rest of the country what it means to care about people who can get pregnant and and, and actually uh, Advance their reproductive health in a meaningful way. Um, So that's a number one priority for us right now. Um, And then all of the police reform agenda, making sure that we are transparent in police uh, disciplinary records, which Florida, Oklahoma, Texas, they're all beating us in terms of police disciplinary oh, history, okay. transparency. That right there
0: should be the end of that.
1: That it, Absolutely. And, um, and New Jersey needs to really shine a light on, on what police discipline looks like, you know, and CCRBs and, and ending qualified immunity. These are all opportunities for us in New Jersey. And I hope that listeners um, are, are, uh, you know, motivated to join the fight for these uh, really, you know, they're not even transformational things. They're just, uh, things that we should have already done, protecting the right to an abortion, making sure that police uh, uh, discipline is transparent, making sure that we have police that are accountable. These are all things that we should have done already, um, yet for some reason we haven't. Um, so we're just playing catch up right now. And then the real meaningful transformation will come.
0: Well, I, I really hope everyone who listens feels inspired to get out there as much as possible to uh, to realize that. There's a lot of stuff happening in New Jersey where you can be active and hands on and uh, and go for it because you are you are affecting actual good in places that are right down the road for most of us or in our own neighborhoods. And it's uh, it's super inspiring. And I thank you for talking to me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Chris.